welcome to episode 207 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Martin Hislop. A month ago, I interviewed Andres Wantner, who is a solar analyst at Rethink Technology Research, about the global market for perovskite solar cells. He told me that combining perovskite material with traditional silicon solar cell technology could boost solar panel efficiency from its current 22.5% to 37% or higher, which would be a major advance for renewable energy. And the projections starting at about 2025 are for exponential growth in perovskite cells. Well, today I'm going to be talking to Scott Graybeal, who is the CEO at, at Kalux. Uh, I'm not sure if I've got that right, but uh, Scott will correct me if I didn't. Uh, it's a California-based company at the forefront of manufacturing perovskite solar cells. So welcome to the interview, Scott. Well, thank you, Mark, and pleasure to be here. Did I pronounce it correctly? You did. <laughs> well, it was it was a, a it was a fluke. Uh, yeah. But look, thank you very much for doing this. I've wanted to to talk about the de uh, the the technology around perovskite uh, for a long time now. So maybe let's start with because many of our listeners uh, won't know what it is. What is perovskite? So the name perovskite refers to a mineral called perovskite. That's a calcium titanate, but it has nothing really to do with what we do or what the industry does. It's effectively describes the crystal structure of materials that we synthesize in manufacturing. And uh, metal halide perovskites make very low cost yet very powerful solar cells. And how powerful are we talking about? Like, is is uh, was Andres uh, correct? Uh, those kind of efficiencies uh, uh, achievable? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Andres, I would say, is probably one of the leading thinkers in terms of research on the perovskite industry, and so he keeps a very close tabs on what's happening. And what he's referring to, if you look at the gap in champion cells between the best in case crystalline silicon and best. Uh, perovskite, and there's theoretical efficiencies that are higher for perovskites than for crystalline silicon. What, how high would the theoretical efficiencies go? Around what he's saying. You know, he talked about in the very high 30s that that he is correct. When we think about our products, for example, we're targeting clearly a 30% efficient module, and that's in a tandem configuration. So silicon as well as perovskites. And so we're going to see significant increases in efficiency on crystalline silicon architectures by leveraging this amazing nanomaterial. How do you add it? How do you add perovskite to traditional solar cells? So our approach is what we call four-terminal. You can divide the market into two-terminal and four-terminal very grossly. A four-terminal device is what we produce. And so we consign glass from solar module manufacturers and deposit a less than one micron thick layer of a proprietary material stack using deposition techniques that we've developed onto the glass. That glass is then provided to the module manufacturer that integrates it into their module. And so they're connected electrically in parallel. You can think about it as having two sets of solar cells now operating independently, but combining that energy coming out of the module to boost the efficiency. Where is this technology headed? Are we going to see perovskite eventually uh, replace silicon? I think that's a near certainty. Um, the question is when. Um, our approach has been to get perovskites commercialized and ramped at a scale, leveraging this four-terminal approach, but longer term, it doesn't take much to, to squint, and you can see it from here, where perovskites do replace silicon as 
the uh, let's call it the absorber of choice for modules. And that really unlocks a lot of potential and a lot of flexibility in the supply chain because the materials that we're talking about are not rare earths. They're readily available. It's a function of setting up the manufacturing capacity, developing a local supply chain and being able to produce solar very cost effectively. I, I want to get into that in, in some detail, uh, but first I want to go back to something you said about the perovskite, which is that it's it's not a mineral uh, that you're using. It's a it's a, a synthetic, like a nanotube that you you manufactured. Is that the case? That's the that's correct. And so, the what are the the material inputs into that? Uh, generally, you're going to see some type of metal, and the metal is this crystal structure for perovskite is called ABX3. That's the basic fundamental formula where you have cations, metals, and halogens. And so those cations can be, they can be metals in and of themselves. They can be organic cations. They, the metal is, you know, typically a lead or in some cases tin. Mm -hmm. And the halides are halogens. So things that people are used to seeing, iodine, chlorine, bromine, things like that. Um, and then when they're processed under certain conditions and temperature, pressure, light intensity, whatever, they do form these perovskite shaped crystals. And it's an interesting material because it has a tendency to heal itself when it's dark outside. There's a lot of applications. There's companies we're using perovskites for consumer devices, a lot of interest in the satellite space, as well as what we see for terrestrial PV. So they're uh, unlike um, other parts of the clean energy technologies, it sounds like there are no material constraints to the expansion of a perovskite solar cell industry. That is correct. Wasn't that interesting? And, and are they easily uh, recyclable? Well, I think that, yes, they, they can be. And there is a lot of work that's happening regarding the recyclability of these materials. Um, and so... You know, fundamentally, you get down to this base constituents. The question is going to be economics. Is it economically viable? And I think the answer is yes. Um, it's not a problem that we're directly uh, researching, but we are working with companies that are involved in PV module recycling because we do see that we need that there is a need for a cradle to cradle strategy. How do we go through that cycle of the lifetime of the product, trace it all the way through, and then reuse as much material as we can for the next round of, of modules that we want to make? Now, one of the issues that's come up, and, and this is, you know, uh, in Alberta, uh, they actually put a seven-month moratorium on uh, wind and solar development. And one of the issues that came up, came up was, okay, so what are we going to do? But How are these solar farms going to be recycled? Uh, and one of the responses to that was, well, who said, you know, at some point you're going to have to tear it all apart and recycle it? I mean, we can, you know, the technology is going to improve. So if these are 25 or 30 year panels at some point, if they have to be replaced, we'll, we'll put in new, more efficient ones. Mm -hmm. And so the infrastructure can sit there. It, it, who knows how long the infrastructure could last? It could be decades and decades and decades, and we'll just keep swapping out better and better panels over time. That's exactly right. That's what we call repowering. And uh, we have lots of conversations with developers about repowering and how perovskites could potentially fit into that. Um, eventually, we may get to the point that we have a material stack that we can put on top of the module. It's not something we're currently driving a lot of dollars towards as we're researching, but it, you can see it as part of the roadmap. Is there a way to repower even with in-situ PV modules? 
But to your point, you know, there, that's a lot of infrastructure that's there. And the cost to go and repower an array would be much less than building out a new one. Um, and I think in parallel to that, we see a lot of advancements in energy storage, There's a lot of intensity in the market around sodium ion storage, as an example. And so as those costs begin to come down, this becomes a much more dispatchable, as we would call it, renewable energy resource. Yeah, I, we've done some interviews with um, manufacturers or developers, a lot of them are startups of different chemist battery chemistries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, zinc ion seems to have a, a lot of. Uh, a lot of potential for stationary storage. And uh, you mentioned sodium ion, there's iron ion. There's, uh, I mean, this is one of the things that the fossil fuel advocates don't get is the amount of innovation that's going on in the battery space is absolutely staggering. I mean, it is, and, and one of my favorite stories, you know, the oil and gas folks, who I run into all the time because we cover oil and gas, but they'll talk about, you know, how their clever engineers can solve all of these different problems. And, and it's like, dude, do you not understand that the battery folks also have clever engineers? And not only that, but they have a lot of them. And a lot of them are in China and a lot of them are in Europe and places like that. And they've been doing this for a long time. And now, and this is why this industry is driven. It's really a human capital intellectual kind of, you know, it, it, uh, driven innovation. innovation. And, and we're just now seeing the, the fruits of all of that work that has come before. And, and then all, and going forward, many of those innovations will be paired with innovations on the generation side, like your perovskite panels, and that they're game changers. And we're not gonna see them tomorrow, but we might see them by the late twenties or the, the, the early thirties, for example. And so, they don't understand where we are on that S curve of adoption and innovation. And, and they, anyway, a little bit of a rant on my part, but would you agree with where I'm going with this? I absolutely agree. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in the energy storage space when I led the energy business at Flex and we ourselves had a containerized solution that we were deploying with battery partners. And um, I'm happy to see that there is more diversification in the industry. We're starting to see more interest in technologies that are not based on really an automotive or consumer electronics technology like lithium ion, um, they still have some legs for sure, but there's a ton of innovation that's happening around alternative, low cost, readily available chemistries. And it's very similar thesis that we see in the perovskite space. I view that companies that are focused on low cost precursors and commodified capital equipment, that's the lens by which we should look at all of these industries and say, okay, how expensive, how rare is your material inputs? How difficult is it to manufacture? And if you can start transitioning these from science problems to engineering problems, we can solve engineering problems. In fact, I would invite those brilliant people that are in the petrochem industry to say, look, can they contribute to the energy storage space? Can they contribute to the solar space? And we have found that the answer is yes. You know, we have hired people out of those industries and they are brilliant. And then we give like a new, let's say, lease on, on their, their formal training in a very different vector. Let's talk about how perovskite solar panels uh, might influence the development of the global solar industry and manufacturing industry. Now, I think, you know, it's it's it's, it's a, a common place to, to say, you know, that China leads solar panel manufacturing. I mean, that's a that's a given. But is there an opportunity here for the U.S. to lever perovskite into a technological step change? in the solar space and assume the leadership to get ahead of China 
on uh, in solar? Um, excellent question and with a complicated answer. The answer is it's a function of will. Um, if we look at the amount of investments that are happening in perovskites in China, it's orders of magnitude. It's at least two orders of magnitude over what the U.S. is investing. There'll be over a billion dollars invested in perovskite pilot production, research and development in China. Um, and I look at that, quote unquote, private investment. When we think about that as private, it's not really private investment in China. It is actually government sponsored investment. That's over a billion dollars. The U.S. will roughly put in about 20 million. And so at that course and speed, uh, the answer is no. Um, there has to be a much more concerted and serious effort. We leverage the private markets extensively. Um, that's been our core for us. And yes, we do uh, attempt to work with government agencies when appropriate. But right now in the U.S., we find this to be largely a private, for those companies that are going to commercialize in the near term, it's largely a privately funded um, plan. Uh, and what I see is the potential that China will yet again go ahead and potentially eclipse what could be a thriving domestic industry. Now, to that end, we do have some protections we've put in place, particularly for the U.S., uh, importation is restricted from Chinese modules with various considerations at play. doesn't necessarily apply to the broad swath of Southeast, Southeast Asia module producers. And look, I helped set up some of those supply chains back in the day when we were doing crystalline silicon, when I was at Flex, my biggest production node was in Malaysia, uh, which is fantastic, right? They're, they're strategic allies of ours. But nonetheless, when you compare the scale of investment in China compared to that in the U.S., it's a drop in the bucket. Um, you know, we've raised more money in the private markets than any one of the, let's say, government-sponsored grants has provided. The um, the U.S. has embraced industrial policy yeah. again. Industrial policy was popular prior to 1980, and then we had the you know sort of Reaganomics, and and it, it fell out of favor. Uh, not in China, <laughs> uh, I might add. Uh, but now it's it's back, uh, and the U.S. has embraced it wholeheartedly. And one of the points uh, of modern industrial policy, one of the objectives, is to de-risk emerging technologies and to support it, but basically subsidize it while it's being developed, and then it goes out into you know demonstration projects and pilot projects and get it to the point, de-risk it to the point where the private sector can then take it up, commercialize it in a big way and scale it up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, that is the, the, the U S approach here. And one of the things that strikes me is given the strategic importance that the, the Biden administration has put on solar, I would think that people like Jigger Shaw at the Department yeah. of Energy loan program would be all over this. And there would be a lot of money available. Uh, it, it, but that doesn't sound like it's the case. Yeah, what I was referring to more were, let's say, more of the energy technology development. I think that Jigger's office will be a key feature for the expansion of technologies once we can demonstrate scale. And that's what we're doing here at our Baldwin Park site. This will be 100 megawatts of perovskite production. Uh, you could say it's a very large pilot line. 
And that will be able to demonstrate the technology so that we can go to Jigger's office and say, look, we have this technology, we've proven it at scale, we have off takers, let's talk about a program in order to really ramp this. And that is exactly what it's there for. It's to really drive that scale, to de-risk it from a, a debt standpoint, because any expansion should not be done with complete equity. It should be a mix of both debt as well as equity. And I think that's it's a beautiful program for exactly what you talked about. Um, what I also would layer on top of it is that IRA has been phenomenal in terms of creating that downstream incentive for companies. And so the manufacturing production tax credit is core to our expansion plans here in the United States. You know, four cents a watt is very meaningful for Proskite cell manufacturers. And so that is a downstream incentive that encourages the entire value chain. And that encouragement does trickle down to our partners as well as we can give much more coherent forecasts to supply chain partners that they can literally go to the bank with because we have offtake at the other side. My comment was more around some of the development work that we see. I think that the pace of that development work and the expectation of companies providing that development work is not at the same level as what we see in China. We know the Chinese roadmap. And we see that they are ahead uh, currently today. Now, our company, I think, is well positioned in the context of that roadmap, but we judge ourselves against that roadmap, not against what we see as emerging as the quote unquote U.S. roadmap. What is the China roadmap? Um, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I can say this is that it's a much larger size and much higher efficiencies than what we're currently forecasting in the U.S. Is there an American roadmap? No. And not not to my knowledge and not one that I've seen that actually makes sense. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage in this context? It's a disadvantage overall. And I think that we as an industry, and we talk a lot about this in our, and I would call a quasi trade association about the importance of having a roadmap. And we've got, I, I lived through the transformation of the industry from when it was largely US, European, Japanese to when it became dominated by Chinese companies. And I think we there's a tendency to say they're cheating, they're sh shake their fist at, uh, shake our fists collectively at that industry. But the reality is they invested and they invested at scale. They proved rights law. You know, if you continue to double your production, you will see an incremental benefit in cost. That's all that it was. And uh, I remember being in many meetings when I was uh, early in my solar career, where we would sit around and say, that's impossible. They can't possibly do that. That can't be correct. I see the same behaviors today where it, I hear the same rhetoric. Oh, that's impossible. They can't be that. They can't be doing that. Or if they're doing that, it's not real. That's not true. Uh, we should be very mindful of the advances in China and use that as our measuring stick, not our internally derived sort of let's stare at our shoes roadmap. And I'm going to be quite pointed about this because I do think it is something we need to pay attention to. Then I want to ask a question about, about uh, competition, because uh, I make this point to the Canadian oil and gas advocates all the time, which is, I you know, Say, look, fellas, uh, oil has been king for 125 years. You haven't had any competition. And you spent your entire career never thinking about, you know, a competing technology taking market share from you. You know, and it breeds kind of hubris, kind of arrogance. And you don't understand your competition, which is ele electrification of transportation. That's your problem as an oil industry. 
because you don't understand the competition because you've never had to. And it's, and, you know, you find disrupted firms all the time that don't understand the competition. And then next thing you know, they're bankrupt. They're out of yeah. business. So is it the case in, in the context, you know, given the story that you just told us, that the Americans don't understand their Chinese competition in the solar industry, perhaps as well as they should? I think that's probably true in some cases, and I think in other parts that I find in the government, they absolutely understand it. Um, I would say private companies, so I can tell you at Kalux, we analyze it on a weekly basis. We pay attention to what's happening uh, at, at a weekly basis in Asia, and how are we relative to those plans? There was a time when I would have told you we're probably you know, a couple of years behind. Well, now we know that we're probably six months behind, and that gap is closing. Um, so, but without having the proper measuring stick, I don't know how you improve. I think there's been far too much. Let's uh, listen to quote unquote experts, you know, about this. And the reality is, is that some of those experts, very bright people, though they're not taking a holistic data driven approach to what's happening in the market. And that's something we need to, we have to look beyond our borders. And unfortunately, I think it's been typical, I think in the US perspective, not to think internationally about these things. So we need to have a much more global lens when we're looking at competition. Yeah, that that's that's the point I make to the oil guys all the time it is, uh, you know, Alberta in particular tends to be very uh, inward looking. Yes. Uh, and when it does look outside, it looks at Houston. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, which is just a bigger version of Calgary. Uh, As opposed to Saudi know. Arabia or the UAE, yeah. 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 Uh, so, okay, if if there needs to be a roadmap and there needs to be leadership here, where should it come from? I do think it should come from industry. And as an example, we are founding members of one of the Asian, I won't say which one, but one of the Asian perovskite industry associations. They were very... Uh, much ahead of it in terms of okay here are the here are the universal challenges we're all going to have it's going to be around inspection it's going to be around supply chain how do we rally everybody and say okay now we have to go and publish a roadmap the reason why the roadmap is so important is that it does give you that communication tool to industry but it's got to be a roadmap in a global context and uh look and and we we also have a role as a private company to go and help establish what i think would be a much more viable industrial organization that is partnering more effectively with other parties to say look this is what we need as a group there's i would say a limited version of that today it really needs to take on a different uh i think urgency in order for us to really collectively compete and win in this space okay so uh, the industry needs a better needs some uh, it needs a roadmap or a better roadmap. Um, there's a lot of work going on in in the U.S. and uh, with companies like yours. And you're getting uh, if you're talking now about a pilot project uh, and proving that you can scale it before you go to to Jiggershaw's uh, loan program. So you're getting close. Yes, you're getting close. Um, what about what had what where I'm going with this question is you mentioned the IRA and for anybody who doesn't know who's listening, that's the inflation reduction act. And it was initially valued at $369 billion over roughly a decade, but
but now we're learning that some of these technology, uh, sorry, the tax incentives uh, could mean it could be a half a trillion dollars. It could be even more than that. Then there's the CHIPS Act, which is $280 billion, which may have some relevance here. Then there's the Infrastructure Act, which uh, I forget how many billions of dollars that is. Altogether, it's well over a, a trillion bucks. So does the U.S. have all of the industrial policy and the funding available to do what needs to be done if the industry, you know, gets the roadmap, gets the leadership, gets is able to, you know, companies like yours begin to scale up. Does it have all of that in place to support you? I think it does. I think the, like the synergy between those various acts do create a very fertile ecosystem for us to really grow within. And it does provide the right kind of framework that we need. And it has changed the dialogue that we've had with downstream participants. Um, there is incentives now for using local content and PV projects. And that's exciting. That really it transformed how we were looking at the business. Prior to IRA, all of our expansion was going to be overseas. All of it. You know, there would have been a limited amount in the U.S. Uh, for some maybe niche players. Now we're talking about a major growth hub in the United States where we're talking about, you know, well over seven or eight gigawatts by 2028. So that for us is, is substantial uh, considering where we are today. And but that that is a very achievable plan given this context. And without it, it would have we would not be having the conversation around domestic expansion. I would probably be on a podcast talking to somebody in Southeast Asia about our growth initiatives and plans there. It's, it's just a fact. And I think that it did create that incentive framework for us to be effective and incentivize manufacturing and de-risk manufacturing. I think IRA was extremely powerful in that sense. And one of the 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 parts of uh, industrial policy that's very important in this context is supply chain development. And you've right. mentioned a number of times about, you know, downstream and the suppliers that you're working with. And what, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, here's an example. Uh, we do not have enough low iron glass capacity in the United States today. And low iron glass is typically used in solar modules. Uh, particularly those that are crystalline silicon solar modules. And that, of course, is our first technology, right? For the four-terminal hybrid tandem approach is exactly that, right? We wanted to pause on low iron. There is a dearth of capacity. And that's because of really good technical reasons. One, a lot of companies switched over to low iron when they thought PV was going to take off in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. And unfortunately, because we didn't have the right industrial framework, we didn't have IRA that really went away. There wasn't an incentive for domestic content. We created a powerful incentive structure for putting PV projects in place that was wholly reliant on a China-based supply chain. And so this helps inform that conversation very differently. So we are working with downstream, upstream partners, I should say, around glass supply. Um, we are working with producers of these chemicals. And what they'll tell us is, well, I can get you better pricing out of China. And we're here to make money. We have to. We have to do what's right by our shareholders. And so I would love to see more domestic sources, if nothing else, at least USMCA sources. Why can't we leverage Canada, leverage Mexico effectively to provide the chemicals that are needed to produce these very low cost, highly efficient solar materials? Um, so I, I kind of look at it in the context of a North America supply chain, but we do have to have another pillar of this in place. And frankly, that's the educational infrastructure. And we could probably spend another hour just talking about the gaps we see in education. 
But fundamentally, we need people who can work in factories with great mechatronic skills, mechanical and electronic skills. They're the ones that are going to maintain the systems, these high vacuum process tools, these uh, other automation tools that we have in place. We may have a robot loading glass or picking inventory. Somebody needs to still fix that robot. You know, somebody needs to be skilled enough to do it. And uh, we've been fortunate. We were, were ramping this factory in LA County, which has more manufacturing jobs than any other county in the United States. It's something a lot of people don't realize. For us, it's a strategic advantage being in LA. So we're able to find these people. I worry about expansion in other parts of the country where I may not have access to this manufacturing talent. And it's going to be incumbent on partnership between junior colleges, trade tech schools, even some universities to create the talent pool that's needed to be competitive in this modern environment. So the developing a technical, uh, a technical workforce that can, can uh, supply the labor required in this industry, how, how serious a problem is that? And, and because governments are, are very active in, in education, funding it uh, and so on, uh, does government get it? And, and are they moving you know, do they have labor force strategies, uh, that, that sort of thing? They get it. Um, the folks that we talk to, in particular, our local representatives get it. Um, we, we have very frank conversations. What we see is gaps. And frankly, there's even gaps in trades. Uh, we have to build factories. We need qualified people that are general contractors, concrete people, plumbing people, electricians. Um, it cro crosses every dimension you can think about in the manufacturing ecosystem. So when we talk to them about it, they understand it. Part of IRA does address this. Uh, we just need to go faster. Um, that's the one thing that we just need as a country is a sense of urgency. And without urgency, things don't move forward. And if we have a collective sense of urgency, we want to create these good jobs that are going to last 10, 20, 30 years, then we have to get our head around it faster than we are today. Uh, we don't want to miss this opportunity. I think that IRA and these other very important pieces of legislation have created a an opportunity, and it's going to be up to us as industry, as well as in partnership with local and federal governments to now take advantage of that opportunity. But we can't forget about these key building blocks. I would have to say, looking at the U.S. and comparing it to Canada, that the U.S. is light years ahead of Canada in terms of uh, the sense of urgency. Uh, the uh, Canada has been too complacent for too long. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I think that um, contributed to complacency is you, uh, the U.S. now under, and maybe has understood for a while, uh, that your aging power grid uh, needed to be modernized, needed to be upgraded, needed to be expanded, and and the this moving to an electric future, the, the grid now becomes a strategic advantage or disadvantage, and you, you get that. Whereas in Canada, you know, we've been like at eighty four percent low emission electricity for a long time and we we have utilities many of whom are owned by uh, by provincial governments uh and we don't have an integrated grid we have like 10 10 uh separate grids that mostly if they're connected to any other grid is it's you know the trading electricity north and south not east and west but the issue, the issue here is that up to about you know to the, the financial collapse of 2007, 2008, they were you know enjoying two percent growth in 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 their load in uh, demand, uh, and then that stopped, and it's been flat ever since, and and so these utilities are really really reluctant 
to look into the future and go, hey, we might have 2% growth again, 3% growth. You know, we got we, we got to start investing in, in distribution infrastructure. We need, you know, transformers uh, need to be upgraded. We need to, you know, put in new generation. They've been really slow on that. And, and I think that the U.S., I see the uh, the flurry of activity that's going on at FERC, in your regional transmission organizations, in your utilities. Every it's all an all hands on deck sense of urgency, and and that then creates the kind of environment you're talking about that is necessary to get the industries and get government and you know policymakers moving in the right direction at the speed in which they need to move, and that that encourages me but discourages me with respect to Canada. Well, it's good to see that we we have that level of activity for sure, and uh, hopefully it, it helps. It becomes infectious, <laughs> you know. But the but the U.S. was in a terrible place. They had the worst performing electric grid of all the OECD countries. I don't know how we we rack and stack today, but this was a study that I read a few years ago, and just then looked at the the frequency and the duration of power outages, and it was abysmal. Um, you know, Thomas Edison would be able to understand how our electric grid works today. Whereas <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell and talked about telecommunications, he said, what are you talking about wireless? I don't get it. So, you know, we have to have that perspective now of let's leverage this fantastic communications technology we've created that supports, you know, our collective understanding of society. Now let's apply it to the electric grid and let's do so courageously with the understanding this is going to take investment. Agreed. Well, on that note, uh, Scott, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion, and you've given us a lot of insights not into uh, into not just perovskite solar cells and the and the solar industry, but also the the broader context of the electrification of the the economy, competition with China, development of uh, supply chains, and so on. So, thank you very much for that. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Mm -hmm.